Good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program, and you're listening to 3CR 855 on the AM dial, Radical Radio. And yes, we are pretty radical because we are pro public education. We want to defend and promote public education. And we've got an interesting uh, lineup for you today, but we'll start with the education ministers throughout Australia must commit to fully funding public schools. Of course, we're anti any funding going to the private sector. Uh, we are unashamedly pro-public. But um, unfortunately, all around Australia, both Libs and Labs, and sometimes even the Greens, uh, are prepared to say that some of the money should go out into the leaky stint of private schools. In fact, they're much better funded by the taxpayer now than the public schools are. But over to you. Oliver and Kim. Thank you, Jane. Save Our Schools calls on the Education Minister's meeting on Wednesday to commit to fully funding public schools by 2027. SOS National Convener Trevor Cobalt said that ministers must end their silence on when public schools will be fully funded. The inaction by governments must end, he says. Public schools are massively underfunded. At present, they are only funded at 87.1% of their schooling resource standard, SRS, on average across Australia, and they will be underfunded indefinitely under the current arrangements. There is no plan in place to get them to 100%. As a result, public schools are missing out on about $6 billion in funding each year. By contrast, private schools are funded at 104.3% on average and will be overfunded for the rest of the decade. Ministers should commit in principle to fully funding public schools at 100% of their SRS within the life of the next Commonwealth State Bilateral Funding Agreements, which will apply from 2024 to 2027. It is completely unacceptable that public schools, which enroll over 80% of, of disadvantaged students, to be underfunded, while private, private schools, who serve more advantaged families, are overfunded. We realise that negotiations will occur around the shares of the SRS to be contributed by the Commonwealth and the states, but there is no reason why ministers cannot commit fully to, to fully funding public schools within the life of the next agreement. Now, Kimberly will tell us what Mr Cobalt says. Thanks, Oliver. Mr Cobalt also called on ministers to end defrauding public schools in the current agreements, which allow state governments to claim non-school expenditures, such as capital charges and depreciation, that are specifically excluded from how the SRS is measured as part of the share of the SRS. This skullduggery must end. It is defrauding public schools of over $2 billion a year. Mr Cobold said that fully funding public schools is fundamental to reducing the shocking inequality in school outcomes between rich and poor. The latest NAPLAN results show that Year 9 Low Socioeconomic Status, SES, Indigenous and remote area students are four or more years behind their high SES peers. Up to one third or more of disadvantaged year nine students are not achieving national reading and writing standards. Over 80% of disadvantaged students attend public schools. Money matters for these students. They're being denied the funding necessary for them to have the same life chances as more privileged students. Back to you, Jean. Yes, well, thank you very much. That was very interesting indeed. But, of course, the problem is that the Australian private high schools are getting so much more money now than the public schools are, and parents aren't silly. If they've got a little bit of extra cash after the mortgage 
and the mortgages are going up, of course, um, they are sending them to the cheaper private schools so that there has been um, a rise, not so much at the primary area, but in the secondary area, in the enrolments in the private schools. And this is taking money, good money, taxpayers' money, leaking it by the billions out of our public system. But we'll have more on that from our friend Sorrel after this break. It's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason for screaming out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got. But it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377. We are back with Australian private high school enrolments have jumped 70% since 2012. And this was a very interesting article from The Conversation and Sorrel's going to read it for us. Over to you, Sorrel. Thanks, Jean. Um, An increasing number of Australian children are going to private high schools, new research shows. The latest Household Income and Labor Dynamics in Australia, HILDA, annual statistical report has found an increasing number of students going to public schools over non-government, Catholic or other private schools for the primary years. But once students get to high school, the trend is significantly reversed. The HILDA survey tells the story of the same group of Australians over the course of their lives. Starting in 2001, the survey now tracks more than 17,500 people in 9,500 households. In years since 2012, 2016 and 2020, it collected information regarding each child in the household attending school. The just-released data from the 2020 of the HILDA survey found the majority of Australian school kids go to a public primary school and that proportion is growing. Almost 67% of primary school children were enrolled in government schools in 2012. This grew to almost 73% by 2020. At the same time, there was a dip in primary school enrolments for Catholic and other private schools. Catholic enrolments went from 19.4% to 15.1% while other private enrolments dropped from nearly 12.7% to 10.9%. However, by high school, a different trend can be seen. In 2012, 63.4% of high school children were enrolled in government schools. This dropped to 57.2% by the end of 2020. Catholic enrolments in high school also dipped from 20.9% to 17.8%. But other private schools saw a significant increase from 13.5% in 2012 to 22.9% in 2020. This is a jump of almost 70%. The fees for non-government schools are significant and on the whole are increasing. In 2012, the average fee for a Catholic primary school was $2,024 per year. For other private schools, it was 6,621. In high school, it was 5,477 for Catholic students, 
and 12,407 for other private schools. By 2020, fees had increased by 28.5% for Catholic primary school students and 24.5% for Catholic high school students. For other private school students, fees had actually dropped by 4.5% in primary schools, whilst high school fees had increased slightly by 5.3%. While there are many options for schools in Australia, where you live and your financial resources will affect what is available to you. So, why do so many families pay for private schools, particularly for high school? High marks and successful university entrance results are obvious reasons. However, research in Australia and worldwide shows the exam, the exam scores of children who attended private schools are no different to those in public schools after accounting for socioeconomic background. That is, the academic achievement of expensive private schools might say more about the families and their incomes and education levels who send their children to those schools rather than anything particularly unique to the school's teaching and learning. So what are the reasons for this increase? Whilst the 2020 study did not specifically ask parents about their school choices, it did ask about the levels of satisfaction with their children's school experience and other various education outcomes. The study found parents of students who attended private schools, both at primary and high school levels, self-rated the quality of education higher than Catholic or public school parents. For high school parents, this was 8.4 in 2020 compared to 7.9 for Catholic and 7.5 for government. They were also more likely to declare their children's overall achievement as excellent or above average, 65.1% compared to 51.7 in Catholic schools and 47.3 in government schools. Meanwhile, 71.9% of private school parents expected their children to go to university, compared to 67% of Catholic school parents and 47.8% of government school parents. This suggests parents are sending their children to private schools because they think it will give them a better education. Now, the next section is particularly interesting because it deals with bullying and behaviour. And um, it appears from their research that the parents of public schools are more concerned about bullying than those of private schools. And yet in the last week, we've had the most extraordinary report from the Assumption College at Kilmore, where um, 18 boys um, got together and actually whipped a group of other boys. And this is now a matter of police um, inquiry. So I find it very interesting indeed that um, the next section of this research appears to, to indicate that, that there's more bullying going on at public than private schools. If that is the case, then the, um, the bullying going on at private schools is, I, I suspect, much, much uh, worse than that that does go on at public schools anyway. Um, tell us about the different attitudes for different stages of school, um, Sorrel. There's also a chance, um, the article, the study found, that the parents believe their child will face less social and behavioural issues at private schools. Parents of public school students were more likely to say their child had been bullied at both primary and high school. In primary school, 23.4% of public school parents said their child had been bullied, 
compared to 19.2% for Catholic parents and 15.4% for other private school parents. In high school, 20% of public school parents reported bullying compared to 11.5% for Catholic and 15.6% for other private schools. Moreover, in high school, 20.9% of public school parents said they had been contacted by the school for poor behaviour compared to 13.1% for Catholic school parents and 15.3% for other private school parents. Results from the HILDA study seem to indicate parents may have different motivations around the school choice for primary and secondary years. For primary school, parents may want to send their children to a local free public school because they are understandably not as focused on exam results and career prospects. But for high school, they may think the extra financial investment is worth it and want a certain type of culture or value system for their teenagers to grow up and study in. Their ideas about academic excellent, excellence, sorry, citizenship and friendship networks may become more important to try and ensure their children's desired success in life. But given access to free, good quality education is a fundamental right in Australia. These figures are a concern. Parents should not have to pay to get what they believe is a better education. And any family, regardless of their income or where they live, should be able to access quality education for their children. Definitely a message we stand behind. Very, very interesting article indeed, uh, interesting research. But I think it indicates that um, a lot of parents take um, or don't know how to deal with uh, with advertising. Uh, and the private schools, of course, have got so many billions of dollars that they're pushing into advertising. And uh, there are some parents who don't do their research and work out, in fact, they're wasting their money in many, in many respects, especially if they go to a private school where they're spoon-fed and then go to university where they're not spoon-fed. They discover that the public school children who actually get to university do much better. It's but, in, um, it is interesting because uh, the report said that it was looking into uh, bullying that the school reported to parents, and that might suggest that uh, pu public school uh administrators or uh, principals are more likely to contact parents about bullying rather than, yep. say, perhaps the private schools not contacting the parents about these instances and trying to hush it up or just play it off as boys will be boys. And so, therefore, those figures wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be part of that research. So it's, it's very cherry-picked uh, researching, isn't it? I would suspect so. You'd have to have a look at the questions that were asked and um, also the sample, um, the sampling techniques, because it's not an enormously large sample. But then all the same, um, it's, it is very interesting and figures, um, the numbers going to the uh, not so wealthy private schools are very worrying because they are dividing our children on the basis of creed and colour. Uh, and uh, that is a, a great concern, I think, for the society as a whole, if we want it to be a cohesive democratic society. But we'll have a little bit of a break and we'll come back because we've got um, another very interesting article, haven't we, Maddie and Sol? Smart money cash prizes offered to star VCE students at some schools. Extraordinary. 
Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03 94198377 each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. That's 03 94198377. 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. We've got a very interesting article where educational results are reduced very much to the cash dollar by some schools. Um, yes, I mean, we hear about bribery and corruption, but uh, this, is a, this is a rather interesting article indeed, which appeared in The Age on December the 13th. Over to you, Maddie. Thank you so much, Jean. Yes, it's by Nicole Pressel and it was written on December 13th. High achieving students at certain schools are getting life changing cash prizes of up to $10,000 for impressive BCE results. But some education experts question the ethical merits and effectiveness of the financial incentives. A number of low fee independent schools, including Mount Hira, Minaret, Sirius, and Al Taqwa colleges, are among those giving thousands of dollars in incentives or rewards to students who receive high ATARs. Islamic school Mount Hero College in Keysborough offers university scholarships of up to $10,000 to top scoring students, while students who get between 90 and 94 on their ATAR can get gift vouchers valued at $1,000 or $2,000. Minaret College, another Islamic school, offers $10,000 to its students who receive the highest ATARs, Sirius College offers VCE Achievement Awards of $5,000 for students with an ATAR of 99 or above and $2,500 for the top score in the state for any VCE study. Altaqua's college's top three ATAR achievers receive a share of $22,000 and next year's top student will receive $15,000. Altaqua Vice Principal Muhammad Halak said the college had provided financial rewards to top students for years with the funding coming from the school's non-government income and a wider program of scholarships and student support. We see the financial rewards as just that, rewards. They simply reward outstanding performances and are not intended as incentives as such. There's far greater incentive for students in their doing as well as they can to shape their own futures by getting into the course of study or vocational training they most want, he said. <laughs> that's double talk isn't it <laughs> yes <laughs> yep um he also said we're also aware universities such as monash university offer very generous financial awards to outstanding bce students principal omar halak said that islamic college achieved one of its best years of results with the atars release this week of the 68 bce students at the truganina school nine achieved an ATAR above 90, and a further six were ranked above 80. The school's ducks received an ATAR of 98.25. Halak said, it is a tribute to the commitment and resilience of our students and the support of their families. Oh, golly, he's pretty good at, he's pretty good at the advertisements himself, isn't he? I think yeah. the sad thing is, is, is that these, these people are trying to evaluate their schools on the ATAR results. Yeah. 
rather than a lot of other things. Uh, yeah, it just shows you where we're at, and they've all got a money, money, everything's money. Uh, Relationships. It's just breeding elitism. He credited his high mark to the blood, sweat, and tears of his teachers and the school's accelerated learning program and practice exams with external markets. Muhyiddin said the reward money was a great incentive for some students. They live, eat, and breathe the incentives, he said. For some students, they eat, live, eat, and breathe the incentives. What, the cash incentives? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is, that, is that the values that they're teaching their children in this course? Extraordinary. Yeah. For some students, the money is life-changing. For other students, it's a nice bonus. It's a reward for the year. He plans to save his reward and see what he can do with it in the long term. Educational psychologist Kate Crusher said that on the surface, providing an incentive as motivation had merit. It's going to target some young people, so considering that, a fairly substantial cash sum sounds like it could be quite good, she said. She also said the cash prizes weren't equitable and many schools could not offer them. There are a range of kids who will never be able to achieve that. What do we value? High achievement rather than effort, she said. Well put. She said it raised ethical and moral issues and could put extra pressure on the student. I think it's going to be really variable in value, she said. There's a whole bunch of uh, values over whether money should be an incentive. It's a very external incentive. It puts it it outside the child rather than reinforcing internal motivation. Uh, Sally Sadoff, Simon Burgess and Robert Metcalfe researchers of the peer-reviewed Economics of Education Review, who surveyed 10,000 UK high school students, found that for high achieving students, financial incentives may provide little further motivation, but could impact others who weren't innately motivated. They suggested that non-financial awards may be a more cost-effective way to raise results. Gary Marks, Honorary Principal in Sociology, Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne, said the students who received the cash prizes would likely be high-achieving students anyway. It was likely icing on the cake for them. They'd do pretty well without the cash incentive, he said. So there's some comments on this article. Would you like to share a few? Sure, Madeline. So RJR says cash prizes shouldn't be allowed. Attaining a good score should be reward enough. Yes, that's a... And Heart of the East had a very insightful comment for us. And they said, private schools valuing prestige and branding over resilience and addressing socioeconomic disadvantage? Who would have thought? Instead, how about donating $20,000 to a small public school struggling to heat all its classrooms? The educational impact for many students would be profound. Everything I've read about external versus internal motivation points squarely at internal motivation being far more effective for the individual to the medium to long term. Short term rewards may get headlines, but they are, in the main, a gimmick. The only moral consolation is that when students start university, nobody actually cares what school you went to and what your ATAR was or who your parents are you are all judged through the same academic lens. Congrats on all to all the school-leaving students who have risen to their own merits through
her adversary. Very interesting the way they've, they've distinguished between internal and external motivation. Mm -hmm. um, but it seems, unfortunately, that the um, emphasis on the, on money, money, money in our wider culture um, is um, corrupting some schools. Uh, but uh, we'll have a bit of a break now. And uh, unless I'm very much uh, mistaken, it's about time for us to hear about what's going on in the United Kingdom and also over in America from both Dale and also from Jeff. We'll have a break and then over to Dale and Jeff. Panoply, panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855am digital and 3cr.org.au. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. You're still listening to 3CR, the Dogs Program, on this Saturday. We are now going to go overseas. Dale's taking us to the UK and Jeff is taking us to America. Over to you, Dale and Jeff. Thanks, Jean. This is an article by Alice Evans from the BBC. Uh, teachers strike. What are they paid and will schools close? Pupils in Scotland are facing school closures as teacher strikes continue. Elsewhere in the UK, teachers are also considering industrial action overpay. What's happening in Scotland? Members of the Scottish Secondary Teachers Association, the SSTA, and the NASUWT uh, struck on the 7th and 8th of December. The action was expected to lead to either partial or full disclosures of schools in the council areas affected. Nearly every primary and secondary school and many nurseries closed during an earlier national strike on the 20th, 24th of November, which was carried out by members of the Educational Institution of Scotland, the EIS, and the Association of Head Teachers and Deputies Scotland, AHDS. Another national teachers' strike will take place on the 10th and 11th of January. One day will target primaries, the other secondaries. In the following weeks, every school in each council area, thousands of teachers joined rallies across Scotland on the day of the strike. So why are, why are the teachers striking? It's about pay. In Scotland, teachers rejected a 5% increase, arguing for 10%. 
A new offer from employer COSLA designed to avert the national strike included rises up of up to 6.85% for the lowest paid, but the EIS, Scotland's largest teaching union, dismissed it as insulting. Most state school teachers in England and Wales had a 5% rise this year. In Northern Ireland, many teachers have been offered 3.2% over the past two years. Unions argue that inflation is above 11%, and it means these increases are really just pay cuts. Thousands of workers in other sectors are striking for the same reason. Teachers' representatives also want schools to be given extra money to cover the increase. Which workers are allowed to go on strike? And should the public sector workers get bigger pay rises? So how much do teachers get paid? The starting salary for teachers in England is due to rise to £30,000 a year by September 2023. Last year, state school classroom teachers in England were paid an average of £38,982. This compares with £39,009 in Wales and £40,026 in Scotland. Northern Ireland's government did not provide a figure. The average head teacher's salary in England last year was £74,095 and £57,117 for other senior leaders. Experts in England advise the government about teachers' pay based on factors including vacancies, individual subject shortages and competition from other graduate jobs. As with all public spending, money allocated to England determines what funding is awarded to Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. Schools to cut staff in budget squeeze, say the union. So will teachers strike in the rest of the UK? Teachers from five unions in Northern Ireland have already begun action short of a strike, affecting meeting attendance and administrative tasks. NEU members who teach at 77 sixth form colleges walked out overpay on the 30th of November. Other ballots are still open. The NASUWT ballot covering staff in schools and sixth form colleges in England, Scotland, Wales closes on the 9th of January. The NEU is the largest education union in the UK with 300,000 members in England, Wales, although not all are teachers. Its ballot closes on the 13th of January. The NAHT union, representing head teachers and other school leaders of England and Wales, is balloting members, but no closing date has been announced. The NEU says it may coordinate action with the NASUWT and the NAHT. The ASCL, representing school college and college leaders, wants a fully funded pay increase, but isn't currently planning a formal ballot. Elsewhere in the education world, lecturers and other university staff have also been striking over pay, pensions and working conditions. So do schools close if teachers strike? In Scotland, local councils decide. In England, it's up to head teachers. There is no minimum staffing rules, so heads have to judge whether staying open is possible. Head teachers are also responsible in Wales in consultation with local authorities. So the question is asked, if people's children's schools closes, close, can they get time off work? Uh, they say you have the right to take time off work to help a dependent, such as your child, if normal arrangements are disrupted. But you won't necessarily get paid under this rule, which applies to England, Scotland and Wales. 
the Department for Business Advisors advises carers to check with their employer. It may also be possible to have unpaid parental leave, but this needs to be arranged in advance, which usually taken in week-long blocks. And when have previously teachers gone on strike? In 2008, a one-day walkout by teachers overpay closed one in 10 schools in England and Wales. Millions of children across the UK missed classes in 2011 when thousands of schools closed due to a one-day strike over pensions. Teachers in England went on strike in 2014 over pay, pensions and conditions. And again in 2016 over funding, pay and workloads. So plenty of industrial action happening in the UK and looks to be continuing happening in the year to come. This one's, of course, from our wonderful Diana Ravitch blog, who we follow regularly. And uh, it's um, about Josh Cohen, who's a professor at State Michigan State University. And apparently he's been a researcher on vouchers for two decades. The more he studied vouchers, the more he realised that they harm children. Uh, vouchers are the system where every child has an equal amount of money allocated to them by the state and they can take it wherever they like, whether it's to a private school or to a public school. And, of course, it erodes public school funding as it bleeds off to these fairly fairly fly-by-night, often, uh, voucher schools. Um, in this post, he looks at the students who used a voucher um, but changed their mind and then returned to public schools and the effects that it has on them for changing schools. So he writes... This is Josh Cohen in uh, Donor Rabbit's blog from the 12th of December, uh, 22. Josh Cohen, he says, we don't talk enough about children who give up their school, school vouchers. One of the many problems with the education freedom marketing campaign for school privatisation, and it's a problem with the market approach to education more generally, is that schools are anything but products to sample. Betsy DeVos, famous right-wing blogger, uh, right-wing uh, education advocate. Betsy DeVos likes to say that schools shouldn't be one size fits all. She's conceding more than she knows with that analogy because unlike clothing or a car you can test drive down at the Ford dealer, there's a real cost to trying a school on and having it fail to fit. Study after study has shown how harmful school mobility is for kids, both those who actually move between schools and those whose classrooms are full of peers coming in and going out. As Russell Rumberger, an expert in this area, has succinctly summarised, the research literature suggests that changing schools can harm normal child and adolescent development by disrupting relationships with peers and teachers, as well as altering a student's educational program. And in the general population of public school children, we know who's more likely to be mobile. They're students of colour, students from families with lower levels of income, students with special academic needs, and students with housing insecurity. No one's saying that student mobility isn't an issue for public schools, but public educators don't see student churn as a feature instead of a bug. For example, a key element of the federal McKinney-Vento Act designed to help homeless kids is a set of best practices to help kids stay in one single public school, even if they can't remain in one stable home environment. States with large-scale voucher programs are beginning to report out statistics for how many users come from private or public schools each year. And by the way, these statistics put a lie to the claim from activists that vouchers are needed for families to choose 
because we now know from states like Arizona, New Hampshire, and Wisconsin that more than 75% of voucher kids were already in a private school without taxpayer support. But now we need more statistics reported on the mirror image. How many new students give up their vouchers every year? Recent numbers from Florida indicate roughly 60% of new voucher users give, up, give the voucher up after just a couple of years. Think about that number as a voucher equivalent of a public school mobility or dropout rate. Both statistics used by critics to help indict public education quality. When I was working on an official evaluation of Milwaukee's voucher program more than a decade ago, I led two reports on exactly these sorts of children. We found that around 15% of kids gave up their vouchers every year, meaning that as, as in Florida, more than half the kids we were studying left private schools over a short period of time. Who were those kids? They were more likely to be black, lower scoring on the state exam, and more likely to be enrolled in schools that had lots of other voucher-using kids, i.e. newer schools that popped up to take tax dollars once the program was created, rather than the more established private school institutions. What happened when they left? Well, actually, that was a bit of good news. In still the only study to track kids over time after giving up their vouchers, we found that they enrolled in Milwaukee public schools and then improved substantially after arriving. The shame of it was that they had to lose some academic growth in the voucher program before their parents realised it was a poor fit and fixed the problem. Sometimes, though, kids may even want to stay in their private school, but the school itself shuts down and they have to move anyway. Voucher activists pushing an entrepreneurial approach to education don't talk enough about the consequences of failure. For example, in Milwaukee, 41% of private schools that ever took tax dollars eventually shut down. Imagine what critics of public schools would be saying right now if public schools had a 41% failure rate. We're not talking about a local Burger King that shuts down and a family has to drive a few extra blocks to get that Whopper they crave from the next closest franchise or has to go to Taco Bell or Arby's instead. We're talking about potentially major academic and social setbacks for kids. Finally, there's one more reason, reason voucher, voucher levers matter, and it's a bit technical, so bear with me. Social scientists prioritise randomised control designs to estimate impacts of policy interventions, and when randomisation isn't possible, we try to find approaches that come close. The problem that student exits from voucher, oh, the problem that student exits from voucher programs causes for researchers is that they create additional hurdles to estimating accurate impacts of those programs. All of the randomised studies of voucher programs have showed similar exit rates to our study in Wisconsin, and at least in one study of Louisiana vouchers, the authors had to acknowledge that those exits, precisely the students who, as in Wisconsin, were not doing well in the program probably caused any positive estimates of the program to be overstated. There are techniques re researchers can use to adjust for that error, but no one agrees on exactly the right approach, so it continues to be a problem. So to summarise, we need to know a lot more about kids who give up their vouchers. Most importantly, because the evidence we do have tells us that school mobility is on balance a setback for kids and we know kids exiting voucher programs are already more likely to be at some form of risk than those who stay. 
But we also need to know, because it, as a practical matter, vouchers, voucher exits can cause analytical hurdles to studies estimated voucher, estimating voucher impacts on learning or educational attainment. And that's what, and what that means is that in the future, if voucher supporters trumpet a new study, credible or otherwise, that purports to show positive impacts over time, the very first question we need to ask is, how many kids left the program because it wasn't working for them? Based on the data already available, the answer will be another indictment of voucher programs. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, that that's um, the voucher system in the United States and what a mess it is. Uh, so we hope we never have anything like that here. Yes, and in England, um, there's, there's, of course, a huge been of huge problems for the Tories under, underfunding education by about 9% for the last 10 years, uh, as I've discovered in this, uh, an article from the School for, School Institute for Fiscal Studies over there. Um, and this article is uh, from The Guardian, and it's by Richard Adams on the 12th of December. And it's schools in English, England face significant squeeze on budgets, the IFS report finds. Uh, he goes on, schools in England still face a significant squeeze on their budgets despite extra funding from the government, while colleges, universities and early years provision will have to account for rising prices without any additional help, according to the Institute for Fiscal Studies. The IFS's annual look at education spending reveals that, a further, that further education and sixth form colleges could experience particular hardship with rising number of students after after steep cuts in funding until 2019, which have only been partially reversed by the government. The funding situation for colleges and sixth forms is projected to worsen as the number of 16 to 18 year old students increases by an estimated 200,000 by 2030. With the government scaling back Department of Education spending plans after 2024, College spending per student in 2024 will be about still be about 5% lower than in 2010, while school sixth form spending per student will be 22% below 2010 levels. Luke Sibetia, author of that report, said the colleges and sixth forms are in a much worse position than schools with pupils up to the age of 16. They saw bigger cuts in the last decade, which are only being partially reversed. Unlike schools, they received no extra additional funding in the autumn statement for higher than expected costs, Sibieta said. Manuria Wilson, a Liberal Democrat education spokesperson, said that conservatives' economic mismanagement means that both college students and our youngest children are yet again being forgotten and ignored. Parents are already facing eye-watering childcare bills. Yet today's report shows that early years providers face three or more years of soaring costs. University undergraduates have also been seen less spending after successive freezes in the cap of tuition fees reduced spending per student in England by about 11% in real terms between 2017 and 2021, taking spending back to the same level as 1990. This is projected to go lower still due to policy commitments and to freeze tuition fees up to 2025, the IFS said. While the government gave an extra £2.3 billion to schools in England for each of the next two years, the extra funding takes spending in 2024 back to the same levels as in 2010. It follows real-term cuts of 9% per pupil between 2009 and 2019, the steepest reduction in more than 40 years. The IFS calculated 
that total spending on education was about 2% lower in 2021 than in 2010. While the share of total spending on education has been falling, the proportion of the UK population in full-time education has risen from 18% in the early 1980s to an all-time high of 20% during the 2000s, where it remains today, the IFS noted. In sharp contrast, as the share of the population over 65 has written, the share of total spending on healthcare has more than doubled from just over 9% in the late 1970s to over 20% today. The Department of Finance uh, spokesperson and uh, education, sorry, uh, said the government was working on ambitious reforms designed to improve economic growth. In recent years, we've transformed the skills landscape, introducing new quality, new high quality T levels, skills boot camps, and Institute of Technology backed uh, by $3.8 billion over this parliament. In the autumn statement, we announced Sir Michael Barber will be advising on skills implementation to drive forward, forward delivery of these reforms. This is alongside a significant £750 million boost for our world-class higher education sector, the DfE said. We are committed to improving parents' access to affordable, flexible childcare and are currently exploring a wide range of options to do this. We've already increased funding to local authorities to increase this hourly rates they pay to childcare providers and invested more than 20 billion pounds over the next past five years. So the, the Tories are, this is me now, the, the Tories are claiming that, oh, no, it's all fine. We're, we're increasing spending. Don't worry about it. Uh, but obviously, they're in a lot of pain over there in the UK. The Tories have. From every corner of the land, womankind arise. Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Militantly, never you fear. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our right because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Really mucked up uh, school funding indeed. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. 3CR. Well, here we are back from the break and we're still with the Dogs Program on 3CR. And we like to finish our program with a good news story. And this is a particularly nice good news story. We're going up to the flood areas of Victoria, up to near the, near the Murray, and Dale's going to take us there. Over to you, Dale. Yes, a good news story. From high watermarks to high marks, students from flood, flood zone graduate. This is by Adam Carey. Echuca College graduate Freddie McLaughlin split his time in the crucial lead-up to VCE exams between study and sandbagging his family home and the local tennis courts. McLaughlin lives in the rural locality of Turrambarri, northwest of Echuca, which was under threat from major flooding on the Murray River last month. We didn't know how high it was going to go, so we got ready by moving things up. We got some sandbags and some plastic wrap for the house, he said. He also got an unwanted reminder of remote learning in the last days of the school year, though it had nothing to do with COVID-19. 
Atuka College was closed in the lead up to exams due to the presence of contaminated water. So McLaughlin and many of his classmates missed the last days of face-to-face classes, instead travelling to Bendigo Senior Secondary College to sit their English exam. Some did not make it to Bendigo, so opted to receive a derived exam score rather than sit their exams, an option that was given to students in flood-affected regions. McLaughlin is now on his way further down the Calder Highway to Melbourne to study his dream course, a double degree in computer engineering and science at RMIT University, after blitzing his BCE this year with an ATAR of 94.15. I was very, very relieved. I was hoping for a 90, which I got, and I was happy with that. A self-described techie, McLaughlin has already built his own computer just for fun. I'm really into tech. I do programming and development in my spare time, he said. He will move to Melbourne next year to begin life as an undergraduate, living either on campus at Queen's College or in a share house. Greater Shepparton Secondary College captain Rowan Farron is also Melbourne-bound, hopefully to study economics at the Melbourne at the University of Melbourne. Farron, who lives in Marupna, was stranded inside his house for 15 days during the height of the flooding, as his entire neighbourhood went underwater. The consistent message was that it wasn't safe to leave. We couldn't see what was underfoot and it was already chest high, so it was not a smart decision to go out, he said. Farron said it felt isolating being cut off from the rest of the world for so long and not great for physical or mental health. Though he had time to study, he wasn't always in the best headspace for it. The water receded to a point where Farron could leave the family house and make it to his exams. Despite the extreme difficulty he endured, he was actually confident about his exam performance. Farron's ATAR of 84.80 is above the cutoff required to study economics at the University of Melbourne. Though the standard minimum ATAR for his desired course is 91, the cutoff is slightly lower for students from socio-educationally disadvantaged schools. His study score of 41 in economics will also earn him a place on the BCE honour roll. Farron said he felt pretty good when he checked his results at 7am. It felt both satisfying and a bit anticlimactic, he said. It was how I was expecting to go. But that's good news for some students who are facing extreme adversity. So congratulations. Well, thank you, Dar. Wasn't it a lovely story? And you won't be surprised when you hear what our great state school is. But over to you, Maddie. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. And this week's great state school is Echuca College. Congratulations, Echuca College. Echuca College is a state secondary school in Echuca, Victoria. It was established in 2006 by the merger of Echuca Secondary College and Echuca High School. The school is currently situated on one campus at Butcher Street. A little bit of history. The history of the school dates back to the late 20th century when the school was known as Echuca Technical School. Echuca Tech ceased to be a technical school in the early 1990s and moved to the Butcher Street site where it remained as Echuca Secondary College until 2006 
when it was merged with the other state secondary school in Echuca, Echuca High School. Echuca College received a $15 million grant from the Victorian government to transform the school to a state-of-the-art learning centre. Uh, recently, Echuca College received another grant to help with landscaping. Um, Echuca High School was a mid-sized government secondary school functioning between 1903 and 2005, located to the north of Echuca's business district. The Echuca High School campus was situated at the end of Crofton Street and next to Campaspe River. Sections of its facilities, particularly the sports fields, were prone to occasional flooding. The school had a typical student enrollment in the 600s, catering from students between the ages of uh, 12 to 18. The school motto was play the game and its emblem featured two crossed boomerangs. Echuca Secondary College was a mid-sized state secondary school. It was formerly known as Echuca Tech um, and it was established in the 1880s. And moving on to academics, for Loach, they teach Indonesian and they have several Indonesian teachers. They are also trialing a new subject called production arts, which, which takes on the role of students producing a production to show to parents and others. This will take up to 14 weeks, depending on the time the teachers designate. Now I'm going to throw some uh, facts and figures at you from the Akara My School website. There are 813 students enrolled at this school. The Ixia value is below average at 950. 4% of the students come from a household where um, it's the upper 25% up in the upper quartile of parental income. 14% um, in the second highest quartile. In the third quartile, there is 30% of the students. And in the lowest quartile, there is 51% of the students. So really, it's a school with many disadvantaged students, with 4% speaking a language other than English and 12% Indigenous students. To finances, recurrent grants, the Australian government provides $2.3 million annually, the Victorian government $9.35 million. Fees and parental contributions add up to $147,000 and other private contributions are $262,000. It costs the taxpayer $15,576 to send a student to this school and um, capital accumulated over three years is $443,000. 202 out of 210 students received a senior secondary certificate and in the NAPLAN results, everything is above average. So congratulations, Echuca College, you are our great state school of the week. Yes, well, I, I think if you'd been uh, in the studio, you would have seen Dale shaking her head at just how how um, little really um, is spent on this school, on these students, in comparison with the uh, private schools, and yet, and yet they are producing such tremendous results. Congratulations to Echuca and also to the lad who did so very, very well in spite of the fact that he was filling up sandbags during his exams. But um, that's all we have to tell you for this week. Uh, we hope that you'll be back with us next week. We'll be, we'll, we are very dedicated to the cause of public education and Christmas and New Year, we'll still be here doing the same thing every week. But uh, thanks to Dale, we can manage to do this and uh, it's, Time now for you to think about going to our website at www.adults.info 
but it's also time to thank Dale and Maddie and Sorrel and Oliver and Kim and Jeff. But it's all from all of us. Bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.